Our Father, we thank you for the rain which you have sent our way again. And yet at the same time, Father, we pray for safety for those of our friends and loved ones who will be traveling today. We're thankful for those who have been able to arrive, and we distrust your continued blessing and provision. We know, Lord, that even all that we have comes from you, and we're so grateful for your daily supply of our every need. And Lord, we look to you for your blessing now through the study of the Word of God. I pray that it will be clear that each of our thoughts will be guided by your Spirit, that we will learn those truths which will enable us to better represent the one in whose image we were originally created. O oh God, draw us close to you and pray that you will be every day creating in us that image of Christ, that we might be like the one who is our Savior and our Lord. We commit ourselves to you for this hour in Christ's name. Amen. The end of class last week, we had begun the passage of Scripture that deals with the line or the genealogy of Cain. I'd like for us to begin reading in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch were born Erod, and Erod became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. And Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all who played the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. We ended looking at the reasons probably why God allowed Cain to live after his rebellion against the Lord. We discover as we look at this passage that not only did he live, but he propagated. And from him came a line of people. And we begin with a man by the name of Enoch. Now, we don't know whether this was the very first child born to Cain or not, but the context seems to imply that this was his first child, at least his first son. And we're told that he named this child Enoch. And it's very possible, and many feel, that the name meant consecration or dedication. It probably applies, or at least has something to do with the construction of the city, the town, the village. Now certainly, he didn't name his son consecration because of his own dedication to God. Obviously, as we've seen, Cain was a rebel, a rebel from God. And so, it seems more likely that he probably has named his son dedication or consecration in reference to his own plan and his own desire to create a race and a civilization. He's committed, he's dedicated to creating a race no matter if the curse of God is upon him. One of the commentators, Delich, says he regarded his birth as a pledge of the renovation of his life, new birth, if you will, in the form of his son, because he will now be the father of a civilization. In other words, all is not lost. There is hope in the flesh. That seems to be Cain's thought in naming his son. 
In the latter part of verse 17, we're told that he built a city. Cain built a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. Now, the Hebrew word for city, which is used here, uh, is a word which does not imply anything having to do with the size of it. In other words, if you use this particular Hebrew word, it doesn't mean if it's a small city or a large city. It doesn't mean uh, a city of a few dozen or a, or a city of a few thousand. It's just a generic term. It simply means a fortified place. And so the concept is a place with walls, a place that is fortified against attack. That's the idea behind the word here. Now, probably Cain's construction in the beginning was nothing more than maybe a little stockade. Maybe something with, with mud brick wall around it. Probably not very large, possibly no larger than this room even. You see, uh, the term can be used for such a small thing, such a small place. And yet the, the term will also be used later on in reference to Nineveh in the days of Jonah, which was a city of multiplied hundreds of thousands. So you can't from the word determine anything other than it was a fortified place. But certainly, as time passed, and we have no reason to believe that Cain didn't live an extended period of time, as did the descendants of Seth, for what reason should he die any sooner? Uh, he probably lived hundreds of years, and his descendants probably lived hundreds of years also, even though the scripture doesn't say so, but we have no reason to believe otherwise. As the time passed, probably he enlarged his city, and it grew larger and larger as his family grew. And they probably all had this fortress mentality, or many of them at least did, and uh, lived close together in or around this walled town. Now, the real point of all of this, uh, of making or stressing this construction of a fortified place, is that it is one of the major signs of advanced humanity. If you study through the supposed evolution of the human race, you'll discover in, in the early existence of, quote, mankind, he didn't build fortified places. He didn't have the knowledge or the technology to build walls to fortify himself. He, he simply lived in a cave. That was a natural fortification. But he didn't know how to construct a fortification to protect himself. This doesn't come until man has been living on this planet for hundreds of thousands of years, according to evolutionary anthropology. And yet, what do we have? Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, second-generation human beings, already building such a fortified place. That's if we take Gen Genesis literally. How else are we going to take it? The liberals have carried Genesis to all kinds of extremes to the point it has no meaning, especially the first part of Genesis. It just becomes mythology, like you have amongst many cultures. If we don't take it literally and believe that God means what he says when he says that Enoch built the city. What's interesting about this is that urban living precedes cave dwelling. Urban living doesn't come after cave dwelling. It precedes cave dwelling. In other words, alley-oop comes later. <laughs> Much later, really, not until the eventually of the comic strip. <laughs> now, why does he do this? Why does Cain build this fortified place? Wh whatever it is, however large it is. Well, he does it in an attempt to neutralize God's curse. God said, you'll be a vagabond, you'll wander over the uh, face of the planet, and he's trying to neutralize that by building a place that he can get inside and protect himself, even though God said, my curse will be upon anyone who will attempt to slay Cain. And so somehow Cain was set off, set apart, under the curse of God against anyone who would lay his hands on him, but he still is fearful, so what does he do? He builds this fortified place. It would provide a measure of stability in his life. Now, we talk about having roots, and, and it seems that uh, people who have very shallow or, or no, no roots just kind of bang around, and, and, and they don't seem to have the sense of direction in their lives that others have. 
If you study, for example, the history of immigration into the United States in the 19th century, immigration really began to pick up about 1830, and then, of course, as you get to the Civil War time and afterwards, there's a flood of immigrants, and, and many of you uh, probably had relatives who came over in that great flood uh, between 1860 and 1920. And what's interesting is to study the statistics which show that 30% of those who came over went home. They didn't stay. Why? Well, in many cases, it was because they, they couldn't handle this society where there's no root. They, they've ripped themselves out from their roots back home. And many of them said, I can't handle it. And they went back home to where their cousins and uncles and family, uh, family members are. And of course, we have a kind of a nuclear family-oriented society, but, but not a society oriented towards the extended family. And that has created many of the problems we have in our society. There's no doubt about that. And so here, here's an attempt to, to build a rallying place, a, 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 a fortified point where the family could gather and where the family could have security, where the family would have oneness as, as it grew. A base. Home, a place called home for Cain. To whatever extent he wandered, this was his home. He could come back to this place. And he could protect himself from anyone who might want to do him harm. You know, Cain's thinking is not really all that different from ours sometimes. Sometimes we think, oh, God has made all these promises, and we read all these promises in the Word, and then we don't believe him for them. Huh. We don't trust him. He says, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, and yet we don't believe it so often. He says, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches and glory, and yet we don't believe it. We go off and do things which sometimes put our family at risk in order to provide for ourselves because we don't really believe God will supply our needs. So the thinking is not really alien to the rest of us, it seems. John Calvin said this, fear the fruit of his iniquity, drives him within the walls of a city that he may fortify himself in a manner before totally unknown. Nobody had ever even thought about building a fortified place. In the 18th verse, which we read, we have in that one little verse the summation of four generations of mankind we know really virtually nothing about any of those individuals except, of course, who their father and who their son was. We know that Enoch had a city named after him, but what else we know about him? Nothing. And, and the other two men, Mahujael and Methushael, we know nothing other than who their father and their son was. And the only man about which we know much of anything is the person Lamech. Now, Lamech, the word, the name Lamech apparently meant strong man. And he was of the seventh human generation. You can figure it out, counting Adam and Eve as the first generation. You'll discover that this man is of the seventh human generation. What's interesting is that all these generations are still alive. I mean, Adam and Eve are still alive at the time of the sixth generation, the seventh generation, the eighth generation. At least Adam is. We assume probably Eve also, even though after all those children, you never know. Now, what's interesting here in this passage is that six verses are dedicated to this one man, his sons, and his wives. That tells us that there's something about Lamech which is probably more important than some of the other individuals, certainly than Mahujael and Methushael, who we know nothing about except what's in that one verse. Now, it seems, as best as we know at least, that here we have the first polygamist, or at least the first bigamist in history. We have no other record of anyone else having two wives prior to this time. Uh, in fact, we don't have record of multiple wives amongst any of the other patriarchs. Certainly it happened as time passed, but this is the first recorded instance of this. And, of course, it's a direct violation of the word of God to Adam and to Eve back in the first chapter of Genesis when the implication was that one man should cling to one woman, and this is the way God intended for it to be. He has multiple wives. He has at least two, which are named here in this particular passage. Also kind of interesting, 
these are the first two ladies to be named since Eve in, in the passage. Why? Well, I don't know that we can answer that other than that they're involved in this improper relationship. And maybe the meanings of their names have something to do with it. The name Ada meant ornament or adornment. And Zillah, as best as can be determined, meant tinkling. And it's very possible that their characters matched their names. Now, verses 20 to 22 tell us something about this, this whole situation. It says, Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Now, you note down through uh, the Old Testament, it's very unusual when the ladies are named. Now, this passage is very important to us. It tells us in this uh, particular event that we read of the great strides which were made by human civilization. Three boys are born that are specifically named here to Ada and to Zillah. They are of the eighth human generation. Now, the years between the generations of Cain's line are not given as they are in the case of Seth. It doesn't say, and after so many years this son was born, and, and so-and-so lived after, he gave, after this son was born this many years, and the total length of his life was this much. It doesn't give that for this line. This line is not the line to Messiah. And therefore, it wasn't important at least to Moses and to the Hebrews that would follow, that they know those statistics. It would be important for the genealogy that would lead to David and to Messiah, but not for this particular line. So we really don't know how many years from creation it was until this time that Lamech has two wives and the two wives have these sons. Certainly, it was a quarter of a millennium, and the chances are it was considerably over half of a millennium by this time. If you make any comparisons over to the line of Seth, where uh, you know, we're talking about the better part of a full millennium or more, you can see probably that we're talking about multiplied hundreds of years as you come down to this eighth generation. But in either case, what is described is literally amazing. These men were apparently the founders of major human occupations. First of all, Jabel. Jabel's name means wanderer. And apparently he sort of inherited the curse of his great-grandfather in that he becomes the patriarch of all the nomadic herdsmen. He becomes the Bedouin par excellence, <laughs> sort of the, the, uh, the patriarch of all the Bedouins of all the nomadic herders of history. They could trace their background back to him, at least in the idea. Now, obviously not in the blood necessarily, because that's all wiped out in the flood. And we have no idea whether there, how much interlinking there was between the line of Cain and the line of Seth in the ancestry of Noah. It doesn't seem that there was any, at least not in Noah. But we don't know about the wives of Noah's sons. So we have here... The founding of this occupation, which occupies the lives of literally tens of millions of people around the world today, all the way from the Arctic, where they heard caribou, you know, to, to the desert regions of the world, where they heard camel and donkey and goats and sheep and whatever. Then you have Jubal. The name Jubal means sound. And he becomes the first musician, at least it would seem, instrumentalist, certainly not the first singer, probably Adam and Eve sung, but uh, the first person to, to create a stringed instrument, the lyre, and the first wind instrument, a, a pipe of some sort, probably a very fit, primitive kind of flute or recorder. At least to us it would seem primitive, I suppose, because we're used to plastic. 
I mean, he might have made out of wood, <laughs> primitive stuff. And then thirdly, you have Tubal Cain. Now, they, don't, they have no idea what the word Tubal means. What is the ancestry of that name? But the word Cain apparently means smith. Tubal Cain, Tubal the smith. And, and we see this, of course, in what it is that he does. We're told that he becomes the, the father of all of those who will forge iron and bronze. Very interesting combination here. The father of all of those, the forger of implements of bronze and iron. He himself apparently was a smith, and you'll notice the linking together of two metals, bronze and iron. Now, almost all of us have studied enough history to know that if you, you go by the standard program that's set up, mankind started back in the uh, Paleolithic when he first began to become human and, and became man the toolmaker, which sort of distinguishes man. Uh, and and he, his original tools were pretty primitive. He picks up a stick, he picks up a bone, he picks up a rock, you know. But as little time goes past, he learns to sharpen it, to, to knock off edges and, and make knock off surfaces and make edges, and he begins to make primitive Paleolithic, old stone. Then he moves into the Mesolithic, the, new, the Middle uh, Stone Age. And then he comes to the Neolithic, which wasn't all that long ago, where he makes really quite uh, highly refined uh, implements, uh, spearheads and arrowheads and tomahawks and all this kind of thing out of, out of antlers and, and fish hooks out of bone and all these things are made. And then, of course, somebody discovers native copper and finds that he can pound it out and he can make an edge on it and he can have a better weapon than a, than a stone or a, a bone. And, and you have the so-called Bronze Age. And then after that, you come to the Iron Age. And yet, what do we have right here? No mention of a Stone Age whatsoever. And iron and bronze are mentioned in tandem. Now, bronze is an alloy of copper and tin. But the Hebrew word, which is translated bronze, can also mean copper. So it could be that he doesn't yet know how to alloy the two and that we're talking about specifically copper. But, but maybe not. Maybe he has already learned how to alloy these metals. Probably Adam is sort of middle-aged at this time. And at his middle age, <coughs> here you have all the major components of civilization already. Musical instruments, uh, various occupations, agriculture, nomadic herding. Uh, you have iron and bronze already being f uh, forged. Not after a million years of human evolution, but in the very first millennium of the existence of the human race on this planet. Now, this is logical. It's logical because, again, let's go back to, to Adam and Eve. How did God create Adam and Eve? They were perfect, right? Which meant that they had absolute full use of all of their faculties. They used 100% of their brain power, which, as we've already noted, doesn't really apply to us. Most of us, <laughs> most of us are functioning in the 5 to 10% bracket. Some push 15. <laughs> Some about halfway through class. <laughs> are pushing about zero, <laughs> or church. Which means, of course, they would be able to advance much more rapidly. Bright ideas, you know, the little old uh, light bulb that goes on in the comic strip, would be going on all the time. As they see this, and they see that, and they think of this, and they think of that. I mean, invention probably came, I mean, the patent, if there was a patent office, it wouldn't have been able to keep up with what they were able to do. And even though we're looking at mankind already beginning to devolve, I, I th still think even by the time you get to this generation here of Tubal-Cain, we're still talking about, you know, 80%, 90% brain capacity still being used. I, I'm just speculating, of course. But obviously, for, for someone such as this to, to think about the fact that you could take rock out of the ground and, and you could heat it and, and produce, run off some metal which you could then mold and shape you know, that's something. Now you might say, oh, but 
you know, we, we can study the history of, of iron, but remember, we're studying the history of post-flood iron use, not pre-flood iron use. There are some, I think I mentioned this before, who actually believe that before the flood, man might have been poised to go into space. Now, that's, of course, that's quite speculative, <laughs> to say the least. But uh, mankind had gone a long ways when God destroyed the human race with the, sec the exception of the eight on the ark. And you have to realize, of course, that from Noah and his descendants, Noah and, and the eight, the seven others who were on the ark, would come all of the knowledge that was pre-flood. And they would be able to disseminate that very, very quickly. And when we get to that point, we're going to see that there really is, as you study the ancient, uh, the archaeology of ancient civilization, you're going to discover that the oldest cities seem to fan out in a kind of a southeast, southwest direction from Ararat. And, and their, their timing of, of founding seems to be in a kind of a sequence that would fit the picture that's given to us in Genesis. After the flood, not only would human lifespan drop off dramatically, but devolution, the de-evolving rather than the evolving of the human race, would accelerate. And large sections of humanity would be pushed off to the fringes where they would become cave dwellers, where they would lose the knowledge that had been gained and would become primitive in their lifestyle. There seems to be indications in Scripture that those who commit themselves wholeheartedly to demonology, that that's the direction in which they ultimately go. Now, Tubal-Cain's sister is mentioned here, but there's nothing directly said about her. It can be implied, possibly, from her name, uh, something of her character. Her name meant delightful or pleasant. Naama, later on in Scripture, Naama is used several times. Uh, great name. My, my daughter is delightful. She's pleasant. Naama. And that may have been given to her, maybe in contrast to her mother, tinkling. You know. It could be that, you know, she was several steps ahead of her mother in some ways. Now, verses 23 and 24 of this particular fourth chapter of Genesis give to us the very first recorded human-authored poem in what would later be called Hebrew parallelism. Lamech displays grandiose arrogance. A commentator by the name of Helmbold believes that there are two possible interpretations here. And I've given them to you on your outline. First, historical. He believes that this may refer to something that Lamech has already done, that he has murdered a man, and that he is justifying it here as self-defense. He wounded me, and therefore I killed him. And that he's claiming, and if my ancestor Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'm avenged seventy-sevenfold. I'm so important, you see. Another interpretation, however, is that it is anticipatory. It's sort of a warning. He's boasting about what he can do. And if you look, I, I don't know, maybe your uh, Bible doesn't do this, but uh, mine indicates in the margin that it, it isn't necessarily past tense here. That the uh, tense of the, of the verb and of the wording here doesn't require it to have actually happened. And that's why you could have these two different possibilities here. Now, the thought is this. His son is Tubal-Cain. His son is the forger of bronze and iron. His son very possibly forged a weapon. And Lamech looked at this and said, Aha! I have got the weapon which will enable me to rule whether it be a sword or a spear or, or whatever it was that Tubal-Cain forged. And so 
It's not that God will avenge him 77-fold, but that he will do it by his own hand. I've got the power to wreak 77-fold vengeance on anybody who would try to wound me. I'll take out 77 men if they try to put their hands on me. Again, in the words of the commentator Kyle, the idea is this, he says, whoever inflicts a wound or a stripe on me, whether man or youth, I will put to death. For every injury done to me, I will take ten times more vengeance than that which God promised to avenge the murder of my ancestor, Cain. Delich refers to this poem as one of titanic arrogance. In ancient Greek mythology, there were these heavenly beings, not heavenly in our sense of the term, but heavenly in the sense that they lived in the, the so-called heavens. The titans were the sons of the god heaven and the goddess earth. And, and these titans were, were born of great arrogance and, and fantastic power, incredible strength. And eventually they revolted against their father and they overthrew him. And hence you have the... the uh, the theogony, the, the descent of the gods. And you have Saturn, who gives, brings forth Jupiter. And from Jupiter comes this whole pile of gods and goddesses. And, 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 and this is the origin of, of the Greek gods. It came out of the revolt of the Titans. It seems that Cain's rebellion reaches a new level here. In Lamech's virtually throwing his fist into the air and saying, I rule. Such arrogant self-sufficiency. Let's look at the last two verses. This is the top of your page 18 now. Last two verses of chapter 4. And Adam had relations with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, or Sheth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The birth of Seth is, the, is only the third birth mentioned relative to Adam and Eve. We're told of the birth of Cain, the birth of Abel, and now the birth of Seth. But Seth must not be viewed as the third child of Adam and Eve for two reasons, at least. First of all, we already have the account of Cain. And, and, and the implication here is clear that Seth came to replace Abel. So Cain has already slain Abel and has already gone off to the land of Nod with his sister wife, and has begun to procreate and create a new civilization. So he couldn't possibly be the third child because at least there was a daughter somewhere along the line for Cain to have as a wife, and, and certainly many of them. Secondly, in the fifth chapter, the third verse, we're told that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born, which means Eve was also 130 years old. Now, conservatively speaking, as I mentioned to you before, let's take sort of the max figure. Some children in primitive societies or, or non-modern societies uh, are not weaned until the fourth year. And, and, and let's say that lactation does prevent conception for four years. Not necessarily so, but let's say it does. So let's use a very conservative figure, a child every four years. That would make Seth the 33rd child born to Adam and Eve. That's conservatively speaking. Chances are it was double that. Lots of other children had already been born to Adam and Eve before Seth came along. Now, unless Cain was 125 years old or more when he killed Abel, then there probably weren't any intervening births 
back off that. Unless he were, was that old, there were probably many, many intervening births. Now, if Cain were 125, let's say, when he killed Abel, and Abel were 124, 123, 120, whatever, then it's possible Seth was the very next child born to Adam and Eve. But, of course, still would not make him the third child by any means. But there's no indication in Scripture that that happened when they were that age. It seems like it was at a much younger period of time, even though we can't uh, prove that one way or the other. So, the question is this. Why couldn't one of the other sons, already born to Adam and Eve, take the place of Abel? Why is it that upon the birth of this child, Eve would proclaim this is the one that would take Abel's place? Well, of course, we can only speculate as to the answer to that particular question. But I think there is a truth that is very important here, that comes through very clearly. And that is, God sovereignly chooses the line of Messiah. God is the one who makes it clear the route by which it, go, it will go, and it is not necessarily by the eldest son. In fact, often it is not. It's by the one whom he chooses that is the one that will be the next one in line. And we know nothing about the other children that were born to Adam and Eve. Were, were they, did they lean more towards Abel or did they lean more towards Cain? Or were they sort of neutral? We don't know. But certainly Seth comes along as a man of different character. Character like Abel, who was so different from his brother Cain. We have to, to view the fact that sin had already permeated the whole human race as small as it was. And, and probably brothers and sisters kind of tended to align more towards Cain or towards Abel before the actual murder took place. And, and, and some thinking, you know, Cain, he's the oldest. He's the one we ought to emulate. Others thinking, well, Abel, he's really showing proper respect to God. We should go. You know, I, I think already the character of the different children was, was being displayed. And it could be there just weren't any who were really committed as Abel was until the birth of this young man, Seth. Now, because of Eve's words there in the 25th verse of chapter 4, it's believed that the name Seth meant appointed in the place of or simply substitute. Seth apparently learned obedience to God as Abel had. Now, whether Abel was consciously the one that he sought to follow, hearing the, about the life of, of Abel, we don't know. But Seth apparently becomes a man of God. 105 years later, Seth, Seth's wife gives birth to a son. And his name is Enosh, which means man or mankind. And according to uh, those who have studied this ancient Hebrew, they say it means mankind with an emphasis upon mankind's humanity, uh, upon mankind's frailty, upon the fact that the opposite idea of Lamech, throwing his fist up and saying, I rule, you know, but kind of the indication that, that man is, mankind is weak and mankind needs God, in other words, seems to be the meaning of this man's name. So in contrast to Cain's rebellious attitude, Seth recognizes that without God, mankind is nothing. Mankind could do nothing without God, which, of course, was not Cain's idea at all. Without God, we're helpless and we're hopeless. Well, many people don't like that. You know, Lenin himself said that virtually Christianity in the church is a crutch. It's for weak people. Weak people need a church. Weak people need a God. But we strong people, we don't need God. The fool, what has said in his heart, there is no God. We have help and we have hope in him. Without him, we have neither help nor hope. And the very thought of being born in the line of Cain is frightening. To think that you would have 
lived in a society where the only gods were the gods mankind generated. The gods that come out of ancient Mesopotamia, Baal and Ashtart and Moloch and Asher and all these other gods who were horrible, hideous gods. They truly reflected the demonic origin that they had. And so the line of Cain would be worshiping demons. This seems to be the flavor of the two genealogies as you look at Cain's genealogy and Seth's. Cain's is kind of a hopeless genealogy where with Seth's you see life and hope as, as comes the next patriarch who gives birth to the next patriarch and you have bright shining lights like Enoch, the good Enoch, the Enoch and Seth's line. And then, of course, Noah. Cain's, Cain's goal was to establish a human kingdom here on earth. And, and Seth's goal, whether conscious to him or not, but the goal of, of Cain and his descendants was to establish the kingdom of God. From the word order in uh, Genesis 4.26, it's commonly understood that after the birth of Enosh, but not necessarily because of it, men began to call on the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean that Enosh caused them to call upon the name of the Lord, but it was at that time frame. After Seth had been around for about a hundred years and a little over, that is the time in which men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, the verb translated here, to call, can also be translated to proclaim. Men began to call on the name of the Lord. Men began to proclaim the name of the Lord. And probably both interpretations would be true in this particular passage. Seth, I think, became a faithful witness. And he began to witness to his brothers and sisters about the truth of God, to his nephews and nieces and his cousins. Just think everybody would have been one big happy family at that time. Everybody would have been your relative. I mean, in this room, we are all related. It's just you've got to go a long ways back to find that contact point. We're not only all related in Adam or Eve, we're all related in Noah and his wife, Mrs. Noah. So uh, it's kind of, you know, brings it up a little closer. The final phrase of verse 26, I believe, implies at least three things, which I've listed there. Uh, under Roman number 5, number 4, A, B, and C. I think, first of all, it implies prayer. When it says, men began to call upon the name of the Lord, I think it, it implies prayer. Men, began, men and women, of course, it, when it says men, it's a generic term, men and women, began to turn to God in prayer, to ask the transcendent yet imminent God to intervene here on this planet as he looked around and began to see that their environment was deteriorating, that monsters were actually developing in, in terms of the kinds of creatures they were facing as life became more and more difficult. And they saw what was happening to the human race. And they knew of the civilization of Cain on the other side, however far away they were, and of the vileness there. Certainly they turned to God and asked him to intervene to save their race. And secondly, I think it also implied public worship. Now, Abel and Cain got into a hassle with one another because Abel was making a kind of a sacrifice and Cain was making a different kind of a sacrifice. I, I think those were private sacrifices. Sacrifices the individual was making for himself before God. I think at this time, you begin to have community sacrifice occurring. They're beginning to make sacrifices for the group publicly, on a regular basis. We discover later on that Noah builds an altar and he sacrifices dozens of animals on this altar for his whole family and for those that would come after him. It's possible that the whole practice began in the days of Seth and he was the one who began to teach this idea as opposed to just individual sacrifice. And thirdly, I think because of the alternate uh, translation of the verb, that it also means proclamation. That those who were truly believing were telling their brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles and aunts and, and whatever 
about the importance of really tr trusting God and believing Him and doing what Adam and Eve knew in the beginning they ought to do as far as worshiping the Lord God. That they were preachers. Now certainly this is true of Enoch. We're told that he was a preacher, even a prophet. And Noah. I mean, Noah, Noah preached to his whole generation. The flood is coming. Come and get on board. This is your only hope, your only salvation. I think they were simply those who were in the line of those who called upon the name of the Lord and proclaimed his name. I think the very fact that men and women called upon the name of the Lord stemmed from their realization of their frailty, of the meaning of the name Enosh, mankind in its frailty. And the impact of sin was overwhelming. And they believed that God heard them. You know, there really is no purpose in prayer if we don't believe God hears us, unless we just want to sound pious and like to spout off flowery speech, which happens in a lot of churches around America. Remember what Jesus said to the, uh, he was talking about the uh, publican over there who was beating upon his breast, wouldn't even lift his hand, eyes to heaven, was saying, God, forgive me. And the other guy was standing there and piously praying out loud and talking about all the wonderful things he does, had done. God heard the one prayer, didn't hear the other. These people knew that God was hearing their prayers. And you know, our prayer is much more effective in our own hearts when we know God hears us. When we know, be it ever so simple. Peter's prayer as he was going into the waves was pretty simple, right? Help! Didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking through his theology of prayer. Sometimes that's the kind of prayer that God loves most because it comes right from the heart. Sometimes we really, really need to think about the fact we are sinking in whatever happens to be the condition we've gotten ourselves into. I don't mean sinking to hell or something if we're believers, but you know, losing it in a particular situation. I'd like for us to, uh, in winding it up today, look at a couple of passages uh, from Psalms to begin with. Let's turn to Psalm 116. These factors, that mankind is frail, that sin has a powerful impact, and that God hears prayer, are made very clear by the psalmist here in Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2, where he says, I love the Lord. Why? Because he hears my voice and my supplication. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. That was the belief of these people, or else they wouldn't have called upon the name of the Lord. If they didn't know their need and know he heard, they wouldn't have called on him. You and I hopefully know our need, and we know he hears if what? We do not regard iniquity in our hearts. And we pray sincerely without hypocrisy. In fact, that's made clear in Psalm 145, where David uh, spells it out for us. Psalm uh, 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. And the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever. He is near to all who call upon him. Who call upon him how? Truth. That means without hypocrisy, not under some kind of a, an idea as the Pharisee had that I can call upon God because I'm worthy to stand here, and he has to look down upon me as, as his wonderful child, and he's got to hear me. No. We can come boldly before the throne of grace if we are humble in heart. We come before him in the truth that we know to exist in Scripture. He is not obliged to hear us. He hears us because of his love and his mercy and his promises. And then 
One other passage in Isaiah. You know, in a way, those who call upon the Lord experience a partial reversal of the curse. Kind of interesting when you think about it. Here, and then, of course, in heaven, a total reversal. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and make it bear and sprout, and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go forth with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. There is a partial reversal. God does bless his people. And the unfruitful field will bear. And the unfruitful animals will bear. Because God blesses his people and gives them a taste of eternity. Here. And then, of course, that which is forever. Then finally, what about the one who does not call upon the name of the Lord? Psalm 79.6. Pour out thy wrath upon the nations which do not know thee, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon thy name. God will pour out his wrath upon those who do not call upon his name. And so he would do in the days of the 600th year of the man, life of the man Noah. God would pour out his wrath because only Noah called upon his name. Think about that. Here in the days of Enosh, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. What happened to all that? Same thing that happens to the revivals that have happened in the history of the church. Revival flares up and has a great impact, but then the fires tend to die down and people grow cold and people become self-sufficient and arrogant and the church dies. Not the church in the terms of body of Christ, but the individual organization in a given place does. Well, this takes us to the fifth chapter of Genesis, where we will pick up next week, looking at the life, the descendants of Seth.